When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today we're going into a whole bunch of law codes. I spent way too much time, I think, introducing them, um, but here they are. Enjoy. The ongoing legislation is very universal in many ways, and yet it is a specific law for the people of God that have come out of Egypt. And we treat it both as a universal law today for Christians and also as something that is bound in time and read through the story of Jesus. And that is something that Christians have delicately danced with over the centuries, millennia. For 2,000 years, we've been trying to figure out how these laws are both binding on us and also how they are read through the light of Jesus Christ. And it's caused no end of problems between Christians. Um, There are many Christians... um, today called restorationists who feel that the laws written here in Leviticus should be the laws of the land of the United States of America. You can certainly see this restorationist impulse in some of our architecture. When you go to Washington, D.C., you'll see a painting of Moses in the Supreme Court um, giving the law. And you'll see a lot of other lawgivers. I think Hammurabi is there and a number of other characters from ancient law codes. It's not saying that Moses is the only law of the land, but that the Supreme Court stands in a long tradition of law giving and law interpreting, which is ultimately the real issue about law is how you interpret it, not so much that you have it, um, because every law is subject to interpretation. The other part of this is that... um, And you also see at the Supreme Court and in buildings in Washington, D.C., other symbols, uh, most notably symbols from Roman government. We talk a lot about fascism today, Um, fascism being a bad thing for most people, I think. There are probably a few fascists that appreciate the term, but it's pretty much a pejorative or insult to people to call them a fascist. Fascism comes out of Italy during World War II or pre-World War II with Benito Mussolini and company. The Nazis in Germany were famously not fascist, even though we lump them together in that label today. That was an Italian term uh, for that um, regime. But now we lump sort of all totalitarian right-wing governments in under the label of fascism today. But fascism... Uh, comes from a symbol of Roman law that is all over um, all over the city of Rome and all over the city of Washington, D.C., and probably on some buildings here in Texas as well. As you'll see in the chat uh, from Missouri, the, the word means to bundle something together and refers to the, the symbol of Roman government of the bundle of sticks Um, and an axe kind of popping out of the top of the bundle of sticks 
you'll see an axe and a or axe head, and then on, on, on beneath that is the bundle of sticks, the fasces. And the, uh, the idea there is that Rome held the authority to beat you with the sticks, the little sticks, if you did something wrong. And if you did something really wrong, they could chop your head off with the axe. So that symbol of Roman authority, the fasces, or called different things, is, um, is sort of the emblem of fascism that is on lots of U.S. government buildings um, because the United States government still holds both of those powers to punish you with not necessarily beating with sticks, but with other sorts of punishments and then capital punishment, the capital, the capita, your head being lopped off. Um, and that authority of government um, does trace its way back to the ancient law codes given here in the law of Moses. And Christians have always tried to figure out how do these law codes, how do, what do they mean for today? Here we have the classic Christian problem of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Not a week goes by where someone doesn't talk about the old, mean God of the Old Testament and the nice God in the New Testament. But as you, if you've ever been in any of my little talks, you know that's a p- complete false dichotomy. Um, we cannot do that. In fact, it's probably um, one of the worst sins of modern Christians. And Christians have been committing this sin for a long time. Because what it does is it sets up a different God for the people of God in the Old Testament um, than we have now. And that different God um, is evil. And that is, you know, not what the Bible teaches at all or what Christianity has ever taught. But um, the, the real pernicious part of that and the real dangerous part of that belief is that it results in anti-Semitism against Jewish people seeing Jewish people as worshiping this evil Old Testament God and Christians as good people worshiping a nice, cleaned-up New Testament God who is a big white guy with a big white beard up in the sky and the Jewish people doing something really terrible. And that dichotomy that exists in modern thought by a lot of people um, today in America is still with us. And I think the Christian church must constantly remind people that the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament. To understand the relationship between the Testaments, it takes a little bit of study, a little bit of learning, a little bit of exploration, but there's lots of tools to do that. And the New Testament itself offers us the tools to do that. Jesus in his own teaching is constantly talking about the Old Testament and how he is fulfilling that Old Testament law. Reformed Christians uh, looked at these law codes in the Old Testament in a couple different ways, John Calvin being probably the most prominent of these and most uh, well-written, um, or at least well good writer who was able to write this kind of distinction down. They did distinguish between several different kinds of laws in Leviticus, you have the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is how do you conduct worship in the tabernacle? How do you uh, get all the plates and cups and bowls together and the instruments and how you set them up? And the ceremonial law 
um, is something that does not continue into the New Testament era. Um, as the temple is absorbed into the life of Jesus, he becomes the new temple for Christians. Um, so there's no need of the ceremonial law anymore for Calvin and Reformed Christians. There's the moral law. The moral law never changes. It is in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not make any other gods before me. Keep the Sabbath day. Thou shalt not covet. These are, um, these are the moral laws of the Old Testament. Those are still in effect. And then there's the civil law that you see in the Old Testament. You see that in today's Leviticus 19, probably more than anywhere, um, pre- prescriptions for how to treat aliens and strangers. Uh, the problem with dividing the Old Testament law of Moses into three categories, ceremonial, moral, and civil, is that the Bible itself does not make these distinctions. The law of Moses comes down from Mount Sinai as one whole body of law. It is not distinguished in different sections, or this is just for you, and this is just for you. It is all-encompassing. Um, so I think that Reformed um, idea of, of Calvin and others to try to you know, figure out what can we bring into the New Testament era, what can we leave behind, I don't think quite works completely, um, although it's good to sort of try to make those distinctions. All of science is basically making distinctions between different things. That's what biologists do when they see a, a, a naked mole rat and a mole and a rat. They make a distinction between those three species. They study them enough to say, yes, these are three different kinds of animals, species of animals, and etc. That's what science does. And science, when we look at the Bible, does that as well. It says this is this, and this is this, and this is this. But for Christians today, how do we absorb this stuff into our lives? I think we do it the way Jesus did it, and that is to look at the heart of the law, the spirit of the law. The the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life, he says. Um, The letter of the law, if you just perform the letter of the law uh, to the letter, um, you can do some terrible things and still keep the law. Most of the unjust atrocities throughout history have been completely legal in some law code. Um, Remembering that is always important when we think of the difference between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. And the spirit of these laws is the same spirit that is poured out on Pentecost, a liberating spirit, even though sometimes it might not seem so. Um, We see that um, there are many uh, there are many um, ways to uh, apply these laws for our common life together. This Leviticus law is for everyone, but particularly for the Levites. They are to embody the law. They are to live it out. They are to show what this looks like. And so there's a little um, extra laws for them. We see in this text as well. Um, and I think we started reading in verse 26. Um, Before this, parts that we skipped over um, deal with sexual relationships. um, And that is something that that is always brought up today. But the laws that that Barbara read today in Leviticus 19 start at verse 26. You should not eat anything with its blood. So you can see that like this idea of blood being sacred 
and being careful how you handle it and how you eat it and how you consume it or not consume it and how you slaughter animals. You can see this overarching concern for, for life and for the sacredness of life. It goes all the way back to God in Genesis and continues all the way to the book of Revelation and into the Christian era. That we are all of one blood and the blood of Jesus is what cleanses us from sin. That the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his blood that is shed is the blood that he takes into the Holy of Holies to offer on our behalf as an atonement for our sin. That very simplistic linear progression from these blood sacrifices and these blood laws to what Jesus did is what Christians have always believed to be the case. There are other atonement theories out there of how Jesus' death and resurrection gives us eternal life and gives us union with God, but that is the most linear of all of them and is something Christians have always believed. Um, So this respect for blood and the way you handle it is a picture of salvation because all of this is ultimately salvation history. It is a way to show how God saves people. And then we deal with witches and augury, um, witchcraft, mediums, all these other things. Um, In verse 26, 27, um, augury and witchcraft go together. They might be a little bit different in these texts. Um, The augurs of the ancient world um, would famously dissect birds Um, They would take birds and look at their entrails or maybe other animals as well. And then from those, what was inside the bird, they would tell you what was going to happen to you today. They were going to tell you what was going to happen in the battle that you were about to fight. Almost every history of a Roman battle has some sort of augury going on before that. I think in the Iliad, there are a number of augurs. If you watch the movie Troy starring Brad Pitt. I mean, I'm sure none of you are interested in that movie and probably have never seen it, but um, it, it's a fascinating way of telling the story of the Trojan War because there are no, there's no magic in it. Um, in, the, in the story in the Iliad, the gods and goddesses are constantly conspiring and doing stuff and playing tricks and running around and making mischief and changing the battlefield and doing all sorts of switcheroos on people and drowning them and lightning bolts and all sorts of stuff. But in that movie, it's told as a very human story with no God interventions. Even the augury uh, scene in that movie um, is one that is devoid of magic, um, devoid of any kind of divine intervention, which is kind of weird when you think of the way Homer tells the story in the Iliad. But that is sort of the preoccupation of that 90s, early 2000s experience, a world devoid of magic, a world where nobody believes in anything anymore. Um, If you made that movie today, as I think the most recent Trojan War story series has a lot more magic in it. I think people right now in 2022 have a lot bigger sense of what magic is and that the possibility for it exists. As we've seen the failure of science and the failure of a universal shared belief in science um, crumbling in the last 50 years. Uh, For instance, in our prayer book, and I've pointed this out before many times, and we have some new folks who maybe haven't heard this, but in the 1979 prayer book, 
written in the six, late 60s and, and 70s. Um, there is no pandemic prayers in it, no prayers for a plague, no prayers for a global epidemic or pandemic that um, sweeps the globe. Um, when this prayer book was written in the 1970s, they didn't really believe that would ever happen again. Um, this is before the AIDS uh, pandemic um, hit the scene. And, and people really thought that science had conquered disease once and for all. And science had conquered a lot of diseases. Polio, smallpox, a number of other major killers of people around the world had been eradicated. And people really thought that that was going to be over. That was not going to be a thing that the modern scientific world would experience. But they left it out of the prayer book. Well, we need those prayers today, don't we? Um, in this time period. So um, witchcraft and augury, again, are ways of going around the ways that people understand what God is doing. This is not denigrating folk religion in any way. Folk religion has always existed within Christianity, um, ways of understanding nature and plants and herbs and the stars and other things which we see all throughout the New Testament, and even in the Old Testament, I would argue as well. There is always folk religion that goes along with it. And I think a lot of modern witchcraft is both a reaction to Christianity's abuses of folk religion and exclusion of it, and especially in Protestant and Baptist and um, Reformed circles, but um, it exists. So the, the witchcraft that um, is talked about here in the augury, are ways of trying to figure out what's going to happen in the future um, that doesn't involve talking to God. Um, talking to God is the ultimate way to figure out what's going to happen in the future and consulting the law of God. That is always the case. And we could talk more about that, but I want to finish the thought and not go on too long. Um, don't mar the edges of your beard. This is a prohibition against uh, goatees. Do not round off the hair on your temples. Um, so don't cut your hair here and don't cut your beard here. Um, some have seen these uh, marks as designations of pagan priesthoods or something like that. The prescription for the Levites, this is Levitical code, um, that they are to have full beards. They are not to doctor their beards up. And it's at this point we can say that this does seem to be a, a law just for that time and place. I mean, does God really care about the hair that grows out of people's faces? Um, does that really a big concern of God? Um, and we say, well, maybe not, maybe it is. Um, you shall not make gashes in your flesh for the dead or tattoo any marks upon you. I am the Lord. These seem to be very um, specific um, ways of people marking themselves. Remember, what is the mark of God's people? There is a mark on God's people, on all the males of the people of God. The mark of circumcision is the mark of God's people. And to do any other marking to designate your group um, seems to go against that, the focus on that one symbol, which is also a very radical, um, a radical thing to do, honestly. Um, and it's something that many, even Christians, still practice today, circumcision. 
And if you'd like more thought on that, if you're having a baby soon, um, we can talk about that. <laughs> I'd be glad to do that. Um, but this idea of, of tattoos and beards, goatees, um, seems to be for a very time and place. And yet we, we're not really sure. Jesus never uh, talks about these, mark, these markings uh, in the Levitical codes. Um, and you might say these are just for the Levites. So to be a priest in the temp- temple or tabernacle, you had to not look like the pagan priests, even though there were probably some overlaps there. Um, that could be a way of interpreting these anti-tattoo um, texts. And um, if you have tattoos, uh, that to me this falls under the um, meat offered to idols, that there may have been a time and place where certain th- practices um, were associated with anti-faith and anti-God uh, identity, but that is not the case now. I do think that the, the fact that it includes tattoos in this text might be that um, tattoos are really powerful symbols of meaning for people. Everyone I've ever known that's had a tattoo um, has always, it's always been something that really meant something to them. And whenever we talk, whenever there's something that means a lot to us, whether it's our sexuality, as the law code addresses in the verses before 26, whether it's the markings of our bodies with tattoos, or really anything like that, um, we are talking about how humans make meaning of their lives in a very deeply and profound way. And this law of Moses, this law of God that's coming from Sinai, is saying, put God at the center of the meaning-making of your life. And so rather than seeing it as like, never get a tattoo, I think it's good to say, where does God fit in to my tattoos? Where does God fit into the meaning-making of my life? Where is God in, in, this, in this existence that I have been given on this earth? And to me, that is a very profound thing to do and a very meaningful thing to do um, when it comes to how we look at um, our bodies and what we do with our bodies. Because ultimately, everything that we do with our bodies is part of God's, um, part of God's world that we live in. And our, and our lives are, are very much a gift. So, um, and I'm going to close on one note. I'm sorry I'm talking this too long, but there's so much here um, to go with. Uh, two, two last things. I, I'll stop there. Sorry to keep going. But um, this, this idea says, you shall not make any gashes in your flesh for the dead. Um, we know that um, there are many Bible stories where people try to get God to notice them by cutting themselves with lances and knives, the story of famous of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. But um, in our grief, in our suffering, in our pain, um, many people uh, do cut themselves in those times of pain and grief and anguish. Um, in fact, um, many uh, people in our community and around the world and in our world um, do this and get treatment for it in mental health facilities and clinics and in, um, in mental health hospitals and programs. And there are apps to, to show like how many days it's been since you cut yourself. Um, and to be aware of that, I think is really important that one of the things humans do in our anguish is try to inflict pain 
on ourselves. And the, the law here is not, um, I mean, it can't really stop people from doing this. Um, what it is saying, though, and this is how the rabbis interpreted this over the years, was that when something happens to you, when someone dies, or you've had a loss, or, you've lo- or, or a breakup, or some other uh, tragedy in your life, some other thing that's set you back, something that's gotten you down, and you want to cut into your own flesh, when, when that happens, um, the rabbis said, you should tear your garments, you should rip your clothes in anguish, you should not cut into your flesh. When you rip your clothes in anguish, when you're grieving and you tear your clothing, um, you are showing that your outer world has been hurt and ripped and torn. And that your inner world, even though it feels like it is torn also, your inner world is still there. It is still intact. You are still you. You are still here. You are still alive. Even though what has been outside you has been lost. And the rabbis made that very clear, that, that the appropriate response to grief is to tear your clothing, not your flesh. Do not make a mark. Do not uh, pierce your flesh for your grief, um, but tear your clothing. And I think that's a good thing to remember for us today. When our uh, grief overwhelms us, that we do not hurt ourselves in that grief, whether that's through drinking too much, whether that's um, through cutting whether that's through some other self-destructive behavior. Um, That is not what ultimately leads to more life. What leads to more life is to lament and to tear our clothing, to show in our outer world that that something has gone wrong. And that is a good thing, to reach out and ask for help, to reach out in anguish and pain and say, I'm suffering. Those are all ways that will lead to more life. But this other way will just lead to more death. And that is a temptation for humans 3,000 years ago and one for us today. And um, it is something that I think in this community um, is, a, is a word that we need to hear today. Amen. Almighty God, you've given us grace at this time with one accord to make our common supplication to you. And you have promised through your well-beloved Son that when two or three are gathered together in his name, you will be in the midst of them. Fulfill now, O Lord, our desires and petitions as may be best for us, granting us in this world knowledge of your truth. In the age to come, life everlasting. Amen. Amen.